Welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. There's a, a moment I want to, to visit today, and you can be seated. And uh, if you got your leather backs, you can open up to Exodus chapter 3. But there's a moment I, I want to visit, and uh, I want to look at uh, a moment that forever changed Moses' life. We've been going in and through and, and really unpacking the book of Exodus is, is kind of where I didn't plan on it, but really landed to um, work through the scripture of, of what does the Bible say and look at, at that desert generation. Because it's in the desert we're changed, would you say? It's in the desert where we really press in and we seek and we look for him. And, and, and when we're uh, left with nothing, we come to find out that God is working and moving and, and doing on our behalf. And Today, specifically, I want to look at what does God say about his presence, his presence. I, I, I am a firm believer and am sold out to the knowledge and to the experience of God, which is found in his presence. The Bible speaks from cover to cover of what it, his presence looks like. And if you want to really put it into a big idea this morning, it's this. It's that the Lord is seeking for a people or a person. He's seeking for a place and he's seeking for a time. He's, when he l- longs to put his presence on something or in something, it's not random. It's not by accident. It's not chaotic. It's not out of order. But the Lord is seeking a people, a place, and a time to put his presence in. We look at Exodus chapter 3 and it's the encounter of Moses at the burning bush when he experiences the manifest presence of God. And I want to go from Moses all the way to Jesus today, so you better buckle up because we're, we're going in, and we're going to see how the presence of God isn't bound to just the First Testament, the Old Covenant, but it's a picture and a type and a prefigurement of what it looks like to live a presence-driven life. Anybody today, show a hand. Do you want to live a presence-driven driven life. You want to be in a presence-driven church. You want to be a presence-driven people. And the time that God gives us here, you want to live a presence-driven life. I'm not, I am tired of seeing um, churches and movements and people trying to just muster things up in their own strength instead of what Exodus 33:15 says, and time and time again, the, really the creed of Moses, unless your presence goes with me, I ain't going. I'm not going to have it. You know, when we redid this whole sanctuary five, six years ago, we had pulled back the carpet. And if you guys remember, on a Wednesday night, we wrote scripture and and really dedicated the little change here underneath the carpet. It's full of, of scripture and signatures. And the scripture that I wrote was where Moses said, without your presence, I won't go. And it comes to me every time I step up here, I'm reminded that, if your presence isn't with me, I'm sitting down. I'm not doing it without your anointing, without your presence. And where I want us to go today is I want you to look at your life, look at your encounters with God, look at the awakenings that you've had, because the burning bush isn't just set to Moses, 
but the burning bush is allegory and symbolism of moments of awakening when we encounter the voice and the presence and the person and the place of God. And so as we look at Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read it and then we're going to get into it. Uh, But it says this, it says, now Moses was tending the flock, doing what he always did. And he was in the place of his father's house, Jethro. And it said, the priest of Midian, and he held the flock to the back of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but it was not consumed. Moses said, I will not turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. He's perplexed. So when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. God God called him from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. You look into this, his feet would have been a, from a, a leather hide, something dead, and there's nothing dead allowed in the presence of God. So it's a removing of that which is dead, and it is also a picture of when you get into the presence of God, dead things don't exist. Let's keep going. It says this, it says, that I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and every height. Um, Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you and, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God in the mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders. And then I'll stop here. You can go on and you can read, but you'll see the story play out of God, of Moses getting his commission, Moses getting his vision, and Moses having a moment of awakening in the presence of God. You see, what we see taking place here and um, is a picture of what the presence of God can do, and we get a picture of who God is, of 
how he's revealed is I am. And when we see um, this moment of God revealing himself, the church will call it a theophany, which is an external manifest of God's presence. You know, we can feel God. We can sense God. We can see God, that the presence of God isn't just bound to one moment, to one place, to one church, to one time. But aren't you thankful that his presence is seen and experienced in many different facets of life can be in nature. You ever just sit outside and you marvel over creation and you begin to sense and see, wow, there is a divine design in what has taken place here. And you're, you're caught up in God's presence of just admiring and adoring um, what he has created. But when he reveals himself as I am, what this is saying is that it is self-defining, that he is compared to none, that he is self-existent, that he is beyond all names, all linguistic identifiers fall short, that he is pure, uncreated light, he is being. And so he exists outside of all label, outside of all who they think that he is. And as he reveals himself to Moses, there's actually, I believe it's John eight fifty eight. I was reading, where Jesus fulfills that this and says, I am, when he stands before um, uh, and is confronted by the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees heard him reveal, Jesus revealed himself as the incarnate Christ, the God in the flesh through the Son, Jesus, as it says, the Pharisees began to go want to pick up stones and stone him for what he just said. So what you'll see in the life of Moses is he is a type of Christ, where what you see in Moses is revealed in Christ and seen in Jesus. And we get a, a clearer picture uh, through Jesus of how this presence-driven life is to be lived. And when you think of the burning bush, we read it. It says that it was on fire, but it was not consumed. I'm going to say that again. When you see the burning bush, it shows that, we, that it was on fire, but it was not consumed. When you are filled with the presence of God, you should be on fire, but you're not consumed. You go into the New Testament, the church will teach even at the birth of Christ when Mary carried Jesus in the womb. You look at early icons and depictions, there's a flame around Mary representing a burning bush that she was carrying the presence of God, but she was not consumed. You go into the transfiguration in the New Testament on Mount Torah where Jesus reveals his transcendent glory, not the fullness of his glory, his transcendent glory, which is a picture of his glory. It says that Peter, James, and John were there and they fell on their face because the presence of God was so rich and so real and so in awe that they couldn't even look at Jesus because of the uncreated light, the spirit that was shining on him. And it says that as Jesus is transfiguring, showing him and himself in his glory, that Elijah and Moses are there. So this is a picture of the burning bush where Moses is seeing a second burning bush in its fullness as Christ reveals his glory. So you see, what starts with the burning bush continues all the way on from what we see in the book of Exodus all the way to the book of Revelation, which I'll get into in just a minute. But I want you to see of how it's such a, a picture of when the presence of God touches your life that he looks for an earthly object like the bush and that God speaks from within the bush and that it's on fire but not consumed 
and that the object is preserved by God's indwelling presence. This is important. That which is consumed by the presence of God and that which is preserved by the presence of God. How are we preserved by the presence of God? This is the question we have to ask. Because we're called to host his presence. We're called to host the Holy Spirit. If you didn't know this, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are called to be a host of his presence. This is the beauty. This is the fullness. This is what we strive long and live for is to be a host to the presence of God. So how are we to host him without being consumed by him, but we are preserved by his presence? You see, we live in an age that with its ideologies, as we've been talking about, we live in a war of ideologies, agendas, movements, trying to destroy uh, that which is truth. And you and I, we carry the truth of God's word. We carry his presence that we're not just called to proclaim truth, but we demonstrate truth. This is the true gospel. It's not just in proclamation, but demonstration. So as we demonstrate truth, how does that happen? You have to have a host within you. You have to be the host rather, and you host his Holy Spirit. You host his presence. And you should be that of a burning bush. You see, we as Christians are called to burn. One church father said that um, Christianity, if it's not fire, it's, it's nothing. Christianity in and in it of itself should be a flame. It should be a blaze. And sadly, the church doesn't live this way, does not look this way, does not shine and set itself ablaze. We get caught up in pettiness. We get caught up, as we looked at last week, in a spirit of murmuring, a spirit of gossip, with this Exodus generation. But you go back to Moses as he had to be in the house of Jethro, a certain desert, in order for God to get his attention. And see, God has a way of if he can get your attention and you can hear his voice to go to the burning bush, you will have an awakening. His glory will be revealed to you and he will make you a temple fit for his presence, that he wants to host you to be a host for his presence in your life. And so we see this, this pattern and we see this type. You could even say that the burning bush was Israel and that the fire was the Egyptian uh, oppression consuming Israel. But because Israel hosted the presence of God, this is key, they were not consumed by it. They were preserved by it. Let's go to the 10 plagues. When uh, all the different plagues, one of the plague was their livestock and cattle was destroyed. You'll see as you read through the plagues that the Egyptians' cattle was destroyed, but Israel's cattle was preserved. So the same presence came, but different reactions happened. Israel, who hosted God's presence, was preserved. The Egyptians, who rejected the presence of God, was consumed by um, the, the presence of God coming into Egypt. And this is all going to make sense when we get into the book of, of Revelation of what you see take place. And, and really when God reveals uh, the final judgment and his final glory of, what it, of, how, of who will be preserved and who will be consumed by the presence of God. And this is why we have to see, and this is why we see the plagues. There's so much um, symbolism even happening in, in the plagues of every plague that was released uh, confronted an Egyptian God and dethroned that Egyptian God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is his activity, is his energy, is, is the move of God happened in Egypt. Uh, 
it didn't just uh, have one uh, fundamental approach to say, okay, this was uh, consumed, this was preserved, but it was actually confronting the gods of those days and of those times. And this is what's great about the presence of God is when it moves, it always confronts something. It confronts an idol in your life. It confronts an idol in a nation. It confronts an idol in a people. It confronts an idol uh, in a church. You, you name it, it has a confronting spirit to it. But many of us, we just want to enjoy his presence and not let it confront something in us. But we've got to see the fullness of it, of when his presence touches us. And we see that this awakening, this moment, sent Israel on mission and begin to, to uh, raise up Moses to be a deliverer and to be a picture of Jesus, to be a picture of the Messiah. So we see this, and I want to show you this picture and next week, we're going to actually get into understanding the final judgment of what Scripture teaches us. And we're going to look a little in Revelation. Um, so pray for me, because anytime you preach on Revelation, it's, it's tough. But it's going to be good. But this is a picture. Um, it was an icon. This is, again, the church used icons, and they called them theology in color. So the early church was illiterate. could not read, uh, but theology in the word of God would be illustrated through these early church icons. And what we see here is the final judgment. We see Christ in the center, and we see his glory coming out, but it looks different to each group that is experiencing this presence, experiencing this glory. You'll see on one side that those that are in Christ are going from one state of glory to a greater state of glory that they are being preserved into Christ at the final judgment. You'll see on the other side that his glory to a person who has not hosted the presence of God at the final judgment, that they will be consumed by the glory of God and not preserved. So the same glory that comes from Christ to one camp is the presence of God and is what we've awaited because we've hosted him. We recognize it. We've made ourselves a temple to receive him. But the other camp who has rejected God, who has had Egypt in them, who has not dealt with their idols, who has not allowed the presence of God to purify them and cleanse them, the same glory looks like wrath. This is what the church has always taught. And this is why we have to live a life to be presence-driven people because he is looking for a person in Christ when he comes in the fullness of his glory. That just as he revealed it, in picture transcendent glory, he transfigured himself. There's actually a depiction of where John, who gives us the book of Revelation, that he is actually looking to the person of Christ and receiving the revelation of God, which the apocalypse of God, which were given in the book of Revelation through John, because he spent time in the presence of God. There's a lot of different ways we can go, but... Um, and again, this is why we've started a podcast. I'm actually going to do an hour in-depth teaching this week on this whole subject, but I, I just want to get it out here because of, of where we're going. I want to now go to Jesus, and I want to see Jesus, and this is really where I want to live and, and what I want us to see, is you started Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, it says that there was an open heaven. That at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down in the appearance 
of a dove touched him. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And as Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, who John baptized in repentance, it was Jesus humbling himself. And actually at the moment of his baptism, it is a picture of him accepting his destiny of one day, the cross. So we see a type of, of the cross that is yet to come, even at his baptism. Because why would the Son of God need to be baptized in repentance in the first place? Sinless, right? Jesus doesn't need to repent. But it's a picture of him choosing to take the cross. So Jesus is baptized. There is an open heaven. The Spirit of God descends upon him. Now here's the beauty of what you see in this story of Jesus' baptism. The heaven, the open heaven never closed up. So in the day and time we live in now, we live under an open heaven. Jesus even teaches us to pray, pray on earth as it is in heaven. So as Jesus opens up this heaven, he gives us access to a presence-driven life. Okay, he's baptized. What happens next in the chronological order? He then rises out of his baptism, and he goes 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And it says that he goes in with the Holy Spirit, but he comes out with power. So we see Jesus go into the wilderness to oppose the strong man, to oppose Lucifer, to oppose our spiritual enemy. Now, this is important of what we have to know about Jesus, is as he goes into the wilderness... Does he go in with his divinity and defeat the enemy? Because here's the thing. Is he go- if he were to go in with his divinity, he could snap his finger and everything be obliterated. He still possesses his divinity, but he doesn't unleash it. Just as he chose freely to accept the cross, he could have obliterated all of Rome in his divinity, but he chose to accept the cross And there was one commentary that I think um, portrays it so well. As Jesus goes into the wilderness, it's as though he takes the right hand of his divinity and he binds it behind his back. And he takes what just happened at his baptism. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He lives a spirit-empowered life. We have a whole series two years ago I preached on this called Spirit-Filled Jesus. And he comes out of the wilderness or as he's in the wilderness, he takes his spirit empowerment and it's as though he shames the devil to say, I can defeat you and show you how a life empowered by the spirit can destroy the enemy and sucker punch him with his left hand while the right hand of his divinity is behind his back. I mean, this is the God you serve. And there's, there's a picture Jesus is giving us here is he is setting the stage of what a anointed walk in the spirit-filled life looks like empowered by the Holy Spirit. From his baptism to his uh, ascension, Jesus models a life empowered by the Holy Spirit, relied on the Holy Spirit, choosing to put his divinity of what you see, of how he walks. He's still uh, in full, fully God, fully man, but we see his humanity because he's giving us a picture for us of how we're to walk a spirit-filled life. So he comes out of the wilderness. Luke chapter four, we see him give his inaugural statements. We see him come onto the scene. He marches into the temple. He grabs the scroll and he reveals what Isaiah 61 says, that this is 
who I am and this is what I've come to do. He says this, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? Anointed me. This is what happened at his baptism, what was seen in the wilderness. And it says, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, a year of jubilee that is perpetually and consistently in Christ is what he's talking about. So what we see here, Jesus fulfills what for generations, thousands of years, they looked for the Messiah. And Jesus says, this is who I am, that I am the anointed one, that I am the one that you are looking for. And as Jesus does this, what he's giving to us is then as he was anointed, he then teaches us later on in scripture, which we're going to look at, of then we are anointed to go and do what Jesus did. Do we do it perfectly as Jesus did? No. But who do we have that Jesus had? We have his Holy Spirit, that we are anointed to do what Jesus did to take his mission and proclamation and in demonstration. But see, we live in a world today that settles with proclamation. We don't demonstrate extravagant love. We don't demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. And we talk of this. Many times we get all involved in what is my gifting, yet your fruits are nowhere to be seen. That we've got to be more fruit conscious than we are gift conscious. Because it's the fruits that will produce the gift or it's the fruit that will empower the gifts of God on your life. Because scripture starts off, 1 Corinthians 13, you can do all these things. You can prophesy, you can preach, you can sing, you can have great excellence in administration. But if you don't have love, it means nothing and it sounds like a, a clanging gong and a symbol out of, out of place and out of sequence. So what Jesus is saying here is... I'm a savior and I'm a God who's gonna, who's gonna step down right smack, diddle, smack in the middle of your brokenness. That I'm gonna step into a dark, oppressed humanity and give hope, give life, give truth. I'm gonna release captives. We see this in Moses as a type of Christ, giving Israel hope, giving them the truth and giving them the laws, teaching them how to be set free and how to live free. Yes. So we see this in Jesus who fulfills and is a greater, who is a new Moses on a new mountain. And he gives us what we have need of to do the work and not just proclaim the work. You know, this is a lot of why as you walk in, you see the mission of our church to bring healing to a broken world. And the reason it says to bring healing to a broken world, when we put that together, it was, you know, Companies and corporations, they all have mission statements, right? What are we about? What are our values? And what pricked my heart when um, we wanted to put that on pen to paper and say, this is what we want to do is, I just don't want to be another church with another cute cliche mission statement, but let's go to who, what Jesus' mission statement was. Let's be a Jesus church and do and live what he uh, teaches us to live and how to live it. So Jesus goes into the darkness of humanity, setting people free from demonic possession, opening blind eyes spiritually and physically. He steps into the place of sinners and identifies with their brokenness. And we see that he goes into the misery of humanity and proclaims good news 
and demonstrates the power of God to actually set them free. We're going into an election season, and what are we going to hear? We're going to hear promise after promise after promise of what this politician's going to do to, to make a change. Left, right, it all happens. And what happens when the majority of politicians get into office? Those promises are never seen. See, I think we're wired toward hope, wired toward something new, a change. How can we um, progress in life? How can we get better? The thing about Jesus is when he gives a promise, he doesn't leave us empty-handed. He doesn't leave us shortchanged. He doesn't tease us or lead us on just to get us to say yes to him or to vote for him. Can't vote for Jesus anyways, so good luck. But what we see is that Jesus doesn't just give us hope, but he gives us power to see that hope become a reality in our lives. And so this is why the gospel is different than any other message, because it it contains the power to do what it is enacting. The gospel contains the power to do what it is enacting. So we see Jesus reveal his sonship, his messiahship. Um, And we see as we go into the story then of what are we to do with it? What does it look like in our lives? How are we to take this mission forward? Luke 10 talks of the um, apostles, the disciples who were commissioned, who were then anointed. And uh, as the apostles and as the, even the 70 where, okay, that's great that the apostles are commissioned, they're the apostles. There's no way I can, you know, match up with Paul and with Peter and the ones that walked with Jesus. So we see the apostles commissioned uh, in Luke chapter 9, a, a scripture earlier. But then if that's not good enough, I think we can identify with the 70. And this is what we see here, that then the 70 are sent out. And as they're sent out, they're empowered and anointed to go and to do the work that Jesus teaches them to do. So going back to a presence-driven life, when God's presence fills us, what are we supposed to do with it? Are we, do we just enjoy it? Yes. Do we get filled with it? Do we get refreshed and reinvigorated with it? Yes. But there is a work to be done with the presence-driven people, with the presence-driven church. And this is where I'm getting to is you have to look at what Jesus' mission was and then the mission he then gives to the church. If you put this back up, you'll see that they were sent out two by two and they were sent out and given authority. Here you'll see where it says you can handle serpents and you won't get bit. And you gotta see the symbolism in all of this is you can stand firm with the word of God, with the conviction of God's word and it's not going to destroy you. It's not going to bite you as the enemy oppresses you and comes against you, tries to destroy your family, tries to take what God has put in you and tries to rob you as a host of the presence of God. You've got to look at what's happening in the world today. Gender confusion, sexual identity confusion. It's after one thing and one thing only, the image of God. And we live in what I firmly believe is the final confrontation. If we don't stand now and take all the equipment that the Holy Spirit has given us to get in the fight, Your family's going to get walloped. You're going to get walloped. You're going to be asking, God, why is my life this way? Because you've never stood up and fight, and you've never put on all the equipment that the Holy Spirit has given you. 
So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to equip you, I'm going to empower you as you go out into a dark, hurting, oppressed, misery-stricken world, you're going to have what you need in order to bring healing, in order to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, in order to see blind eyes open spiritually, to see blind eyes open physically, because we see the reality of spiritual refreshment and spiritual bondage removed. But as believers, we're called to see signs and wonders and miracles as well, that this is what we are to do. But quite frankly, we don't see it in the fullness of what Jesus calls us to walk in this and to be and to demonstrate that which Jesus proclaims. So he sent them out. He gives them power over the enemy. He says, you can walk among snakes and scorpions and you can crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. You know, the next scripture, Luke 10, 21, if you want to know something that Jesus rejoices over, this is actually the only place in scripture where it says Jesus rejoiced. And it says this, that in that hour, so as they were sent out doing what Jesus called them to do, following God's heart, God's plan, God's mission, a missionally minded people, it brought joy to Jesus. And what I want to encourage you today is you got to get back on mission. You got to get back to the burning bush. You got to get an awakening in your life because if you're dull, defeated, depressed, oppressed, you're of no good. God still loves you. He's still with you. He still has purpose for your life. But I'm talking to a mature Christian today. You got to sharpen your ax. You got to get back to a place of where you are hosting the presence of God because it's at the place of awakening and at the place of encounter, you will be set ablaze. And I want to be a church that is set ablaze. I want to be a church that cares deeply and honors and preserves the presence of God because there is coming a day when God will reveal his glory in his fullness and that you not be consumed by it, but you be preserved by it and you go to meet him and you go to see him in his fullness and who he is. But it starts now in the hour of his mercy, in the hour of his grace to become a host for the presence of God. I wanna close with this, Corey, if you help me close. You know, Jesus goes to this place and you gotta ask, well, that's great. Jesus says we can heal and bind up the brokenhearted. We can go into the pits of people's lives. We can go into the mountains of oppression and bring and proclaim this good news. That's great. But if you're like me, you, you gotta ask, how is this gonna happen? Because it can seem daunting. It can seem like a dead end. Relationships that we've tried to reach a family that we've tried to care for, to love, to um, share the gospel with. But what do you do when you hit a broken road? What do you do when the path is grown over and beaten over? What do you do when you're so caught up in shame because of sin or because of your past that you can't even break out of that, break out of the fear, break out of, can God really use me? Does he even want to use me? You know, what's what we see is we journey on with Luke. As Luke says in, in Luke 24, 49, he says that um, you've got to wait for the promise 
of the Father. He says, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Another translation says, wait until you are clothed with power. Again, it, it goes back to this spirit-filled, this presence-driven life that he's looking for a place, looking for a person, and he's looking for a time. And the beauty of the burning bush is it is always burning. It's just waiting for you to hear and to come. And so we see this again, this picture of, of Jesus giving his mission, him revealing his mission, commissioning the apostles, then commissioning the 70, sending them out. They're seeing God use them. They're taking their authority. God's doing miracles. Jesus rejoices. It's like this big green light, but then he gives a red light. And he says, okay, now you've got to wait to be clothed with power. It's like he gave them a little bit of a foretaste, but there's gonna come one who is greater that can do far more than me just in my flesh, but I'm gonna give you my spirit and put my spirit within you. And so he gives this red light. And I believe this is a picture of where the church is today because as they were waiting and tearing, it's as though they were in lockdown because of everything that was happening. They were hiding away in their homes. They were fearful of Roman uh, persecution because uh, Jesus is, you know, uh, has, is revealing himself for some 40 to 50 days, Bible scholars will say. And they know Jesus rose from the dead and they're looking for their followers because they want to try to shut down the movement in its seedling phase. So the apostles are scared. The 70 is scared. They don't know what to do. You know, one little detail we can miss about Pentecost as well, the Pentecost experience in Acts chapter two is they're in the upper room, is um, Mary, the mother of God, mother of Jesus, uh, would actually be in the upper room. And you've got to see is Mary needed a new refreshing of the Holy Spirit, that she hosted the presence of God, but she still needed the Holy Spirit. So this was an encounter, a Pentecost for everyone. And can you just picture Mary who's hosted the presence of God saying, it's gonna be amazing, just wait, it's gonna be awesome. And was encouraging the apostles. I think that's a really cool detail is, is Jesus' mother was there waiting to receive the Holy Spirit. She was the very one who brought the presence of God into the world. And so you see this, he says, you gotta wait. You gotta be clothed with power because without my power, you won't accomplish anything. You'll do it in your own strength and you won't have this life source. You know, there was this analogy I saw of what it's like to be immersed and plunged and soaked in the presence of God is you gotta, it's kind of funny, but you gotta think of a cucumber, right? And a cucumber before it becomes a pickle you gotta cook the cucumber, cut the, the endings off of it, and then you gotta place it in vinegar. And you gotta make sure that that cucumber, as it's coming into a pickle form, stays in vinegar long enough for it to actually taste like a pickle. See, many of us, we rush and we rush and we don't wait. We don't tarry, we don't settle, we don't adore, we're not contemplative, we don't spend time in the presence of God. And so we never taste like him. We don't look like him because we don't wait and we don't tarry. We rush off in our own strength and in our own power. 
and we don't allow his presence to saturate us. We don't take our shoes off in the presence of God. We don't honor it. It's not something that we hold sacred anymore. And if you can see this pattern from the bush to the book of Revelation to what Jesus teaches in the giving of Pentecost um, is you can't do it without him. There has to be a baptizing. Luke 3, 16, I, I believe, says that is where it's found where Jesus baptizes with fire, that he baptizes with the spirit. He baptizes of how we see of what this looks like, the spirit and fire. So as Jesus baptizes us in spirit and fire, it's to be a burning bush moment, a place of encounter, because what you've got to see is the moment changes the member. The moment in the presence of God should change you. And if it does not change you, I would question what presence you're spending in. Because by default, the presence of God has to change you. And I love because in Exodus 3, Moses gives every excuse in the book. He has a stutter. Who should I say you're sending? And God gives instruction of what he's to do. See, it's in the presence of God. Yes, you're closed with power, but you get strategy. You get instruction. You get what you have need of to go into a broken world and demonstrate the love of God. The early church, they would talk about this baptism experience, that it would be a fiery love that was put within them. I think our world could use a love that is set ablaze and set on fire by the presence of Jesus. Because talk is cheap, right? We, we are so good at selling something that isn't real. Jesus knows this. He knows that we have tendencies to be hypocrites. We can do one thing here in church, but then we're doing something else when we walk out of here. We praise him on Sundays, but then we doubt him on Mondays. He knows the, the tendencies we have, but that's why he says, if you just get in my presence, it's where you're gonna get your authority. It's where you're gonna get your confidence. And that's where you're gonna get a depth to know me you're going to learn how to host me. And as you host me, I'll preserve you. I'll teach you. I'll walk with you. And I'll give you what you have need of. You'd stand this morning. I want to pray for you. And I just want to pray that God would give you the full equipment of what you have need of to deal with the circumstance, to deal with the family, to deal with the issue, to deal with the job that you put aside the issues the stress, the pain the shame, the fear put all of that aside for just a moment and I want you just to wait for him I want you to tarry for him and say Holy Spirit clothe me with power that if we're going to accomplish if you're going to accomplish individually and yes corporately You've got to have a presence-driven life. You've got to spend some time at the burning bush. You've got to be set ablaze. Jesus, we come to you right now. We bow in reverence. Father, we thank you that you long to encounter us. You're seeking after us. 
You're coming after us. You're tearing walls down, lies down. But just as in Genesis 28, we see Jacob's ladder. And it's a picture of your presence coming to us and us coming to you. It's a beautiful exchange. Father, we want to be a presence-driven people where we move toward you, we walk toward you, we linger and we tarry with you. We slow the rush of our lives down to have awakenings with you, to lean in deeper with you, that we don't rush in and out of your presence, but it's when we linger, it's when we wait, is when we find you in your fullness. Father, I pray that we be ones who host your presence, who know your presence, who walk confidently in the authority you've given us. You have anointed us. You teach us to walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in this anointing, as we walk in the Spirit, we can proclaim that the captives are released. We can proclaim the good news that it is the favorable year of the Lord when you're in Christ. And God, we just don't want to proclaim it. We want to demonstrate it. So Father, I speak to the spirit that prevails in the world today to keep blind eyes shut, to keep deaf ears closed. That is, the gospel comes out of our life comes out of the presence of God that we're hosting in our lives, when they see the Spirit of God working through us as it's demonstrated that those walls fall in Jesus' name. God, we call eyes that have been shut for years, that have been sealed shut by their own shame, by their own pain, by their own fear, that they be open now in Jesus' name. God, ears that have been shut to truth, that listen to Egypt of what it means to have purpose, what it means to succeed and what it means to be defined and have purpose in life. God, open the ears to the gospel that says this is the way to live. This is abundant life. This is how to have eternity now and then. Father, anoint us, anoint this church. Let us, let gathering place be a burning bush. Let us be a place when people come that they are set ablaze by your word, set ablaze by your presence. God, we just don't want to gather for the sake of gathering, but let us be missionally minded, walking out this anointing that you give us through your Holy Spirit. This is the hour of your mercy. This is the hour of your grace but we know there's a day coming and as we are your bride we're to look for you to come again and as you come again I pray that all here today would be saved that there we are working our salvation out that we're not letting the moments of your presence that shape us and form us deeper in you as we're hidden more in you don't let us miss these moments Jesus, we love you. We look for you. Anoint us this day with your authority, with your spirit, as we proclaim and as we demonstrate the greatest news ever given, the gospel of Jesus.
In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.